Well, I trust that you know that every single sermon I preach, every topic I address is convicting to me personally each week because I know how far short I come of the truth I am proclaiming. But that reality is compounded when studying and preaching a passage like ours today. Today's sermon is addressing what is one of every Christian's greatest struggles and sadly what is one of every Christian's greatest failures. Today we are looking at the biblical command, pray without ceasing. That is the entire verse of 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17. Last week, you'll remember, we studied the previous verse, verse 16, was also a short verse, just two words, rejoice always. And both these two statements, rejoicing always, pray without ceasing, are parts of a trilogy, we could call it, three commands that form the marks of a normal Christian life. Let me read all three again. It's verses 16, 17, and 18. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. However, we can't adequately treat such an important subject as the doctrine of prayer in one Sunday. Think of it this way. The verse last week had two words in it. This verse has three. So obviously, we'll need to go two Sundays to cover three words. Here is today's verse again. Verse 17, pray without ceasing. It's a divine command from God to all of His people. And of course, this is not the only biblical reference to prayer. There are plenty of other passages on this topic. Here are just a few. Even in this chapter, later verse 25, Paul writes, brethren, pray for us. Romans 12 verse 12, be devoted to prayer. Ephesians 6, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times. Colossians 1 verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you. And then Colossians 4 verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer. Now before going further, let's just note together a very simple definition of prayer. This is a working definition for us. Prayer is personal communication with God. That's it. That's pretty basic. Here's the way it works. God speaks to us through His Word. We speak to Him through prayer. So with that little working definition in mind, here is what verse 17 emphasizes about prayer. First of all, number one, we find here the comprehensive breadth of prayer. The breadth of the form that prayer can take is actually confirmed in the term used, translated pray here. There's more than one New Testament word that relates to prayer, but this is the most common New Testament Greek word for it. And this one is a comprehensive designation covering all forms of approach to God. So this one encompasses prayers that would be requests, the requests that we make for self and for others. We at times call that petitions or even intercession. 
This broad term includes confession of sin, it includes praise and adoration of God, it includes even our thanksgiving. It's a very broad term encompassing all that prayer is. And the point is that biblical prayer can include any and all these different elements of communication with God. We go to the Lord, in other words, with the breath of all that is in our hearts. We communicate with Him. We talk to Him. That's called prayer. But there's another emphasis here. Number two, the continual attitude of prayer. There is an emphatic adverb here that's important. We had one back in verse 16. It was the word always, rejoice always. Here it's another adverb translated without ceasing. And I mentioned this to you last time, these adverbs in the Greek are actually before the verb. So last week it was always rejoice. And here the literal rendering is without ceasing pray. That's a way to emphasize something, put it at the beginning. But this idea of praying without ceasing, to pray continually, does need to be understood correctly. This verse is not a demand that Christians constantly engage in what we would think of as the literal act of uttering or verbalizing prayers to God. It has actually been used, this adverb, earlier in 1 Thessalonians. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 3, it's translated constantly there, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith. Chapter 2, verse 13, again, for this reason we also constantly thank God. Same adverb in our verse. So obviously he's not conveying some sort of literal nonstop praying. Likewise, such an interpretation of the term here would be inconsistent with how Paul used it about his own ministry in chapter 1 of Romans, verse 9. Same adverb, translated unceasingly there. He says, For God, whom I serve in my spirit, in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness to how unceasingly I make mention of you. You can see there, he was committed to preaching. He preached a lot in his ministry. He was likewise committed to praying. And you can't literally do both at the same time. Instead, this adverb is a hyperbole. And it yields a sense to what the Lord's command to his disciples was in Luke 18, verse 1. There it says he was telling his disciples in a parable to show them that all, at all times they must pray. This is not calling believers to uninterrupted prayer. But rather, the point is a call to the practice of constantly recurring prayer in all circumstances. Here's the distinction. This is an attitude that we are to continually maintain so that in the various moments of time we are expressing a a prayer to God about something. Even in the privacy of our own hearts, it doesn't have to be verbalized. This is how we live in a spirit of constant and regular communion with God. So in the Christian life, the literal act of prayer is intermittent. Those times where we uh, pray intentionally and verbally, we might have some intentional set times when we pray during the week, or we might even have a set location. 
We have those. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about an attitude which is the spirit of prayer that's to be continuous. There's a great quote by J.B. Lightfoot. It is not in the moving of the lips, but in the elevation of the heart to God that the essence of prayer consists. Therefore, amidst the commonest duties and recreations of life, it is still possible to be engaged in prayer. So again, we're not restricted to set hours of prayer. We're not restricted to any specific place. At times, we do that. At times, we intentionally pray, and it's in private. We find a reference to that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 6. Christ said, when you pray, go into your inner room, your, your prayer closet, so to speak, this designated place, close your door, pray to your Father who is in secret. We do that. But we also gather even for prayer that's corporate with others, one, two, three, hundreds. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, the day of Pentecost, there were thousands who came to Christ. And it says that that large number were continually devoting themselves to the teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There was corporate prayer going on. Same thing in Acts 4. Peter and John had been taken into custody but eventually released. And then it says they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord. They were praying as a group. We have intentional times of private prayer, intentional set times of corporate verbalized prayer. But in addition to that, our verse today is commanding constantly recurring prayer throughout the day. This is prayer that is spontaneous. It could be while you're driving your car, while you're mowing your grass, while you're shopping for groceries. Something comes to mind and you, you pray even in your, heart, your own heart to God. Your daily schedule is punctuated with prayers. Jeffrey B. Wilson wrote this, Believers are to so cultivate a spirit of constant prayerfulness that their whole lives will be permeated by the presence of God. You know, Jesus is a good example of of a commitment to prayer, no doubt. His life was saturated with prayer. He was in constant communion with the Father during His earthly ministry. He did it at various times. He did it at various settings. There's examples in the Gospels of that. Matthew 14, verse 23, after He had sent the crowds away, He went up on the mountain to pray. When it was evening, oh, that's a good time to pray. That's what we should do. Mark 1.35, in the early morning he prayed. He got up, left the house, went away to a secluded place, was praying there. Luke 5.16, Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness of, to pray. Listen, his life was characterized by set times of prayer, by continuous, regular, spontaneous prayer. And after he was crucified, raised from the dead, and after he ascended back to heaven, the early church, you can see it in the book of Acts, they began to follow this Lord, the Lord's example of this constancy in prayer. Acts 1 verse 14, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer. Acts 6, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Those were the apostles. It's just like rejoicing then. Rejoice always. There's this continual spirit of joy in our hearts. Like that, a continual spirit of prayer is a mark of normal Christianity. 
we are to pray in all circumstances for all things. Now, with that clear command established, which is the sermon for the day, it's done. I want to take a further look, though, at what Scripture teaches us about prayer. And we'll do this today and next Sunday. First of all, it's important that we start with what is the foundation of prayer. What allows us to even do this? In short, the foundation is a personal relationship with the Lord. Without that, there is no prayer. And that personal relationship comes only one way. It only comes through trust in and submission to Christ. We can approach God in prayer throughout the day and have a conversation with Him. What a thought! Only because Jesus has opened the way for us to be able to do that. The writer of Hebrews explains that to us in Hebrews 10. He says, therefore, verse 19, that's after all those chapters and verses about the new covenant in Christ and how it's, it's better than the old covenant in the Old Testament. He says, therefore, because what Christ has accomplished, brethren, since we have confidence now to enter the holy place, literally the holy of holies under the old covenant in the tabernacle in the temple, the holy of holies, the people couldn't go in that. It was separated from everything else with this thick curtain. Only the high priest could go in there, and that was only once a year, and he didn't linger. He got in there and got out. But when Christ was crucified, you know what happened in the temple in Jerusalem. That veil, that curtain was torn from top to bottom to symbolize that now access to God is, is available for all. So he says, since we have that, And how did it happen? By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, the very tearing of his body, the abuse of his body, offering it on our behalf on the cross and bleeding unto death, all of that, that veil was torn, symbolizing really the veil in the temple, symbolizing that because of that and because we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, go in. Talk to him. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. What a thought. And this fact that Jesus is the one who opened up this way to the holy place by his death and resurrection, that means he is what the Bible calls our mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator is necessary. Because we're sinful, and God is holy. We as human beings, we have no right to go into His presence and dwell there and stay there and talk to Him. We need a mediator to bring us into God's presence, and Jesus is that mediator. In fact, it is so important. He is the only go-between. He is the only mediator. It's not the Virgin Mary. It's not some dead saint that's allowing us access that we pray to. It's not a human priest that we go through. It's not a pastor or an elder. It is only Jesus. But if Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, a couple of questions are begged. Here's one. Well, then does God hear the prayers of those who don't trust in Jesus? Good question. I'm glad you asked that. Well, the answer depends on how we define the word here, right? I mean, God is omniscient. 
I mean, knows everything. He, he hears everything. In that sense, he's aware of anything an unbeliever says, including some sort of attempt at prayer. And frankly, from time to time, God may even answer their prayers out of his own mercy, but for his own purposes. But here's the difference. God has nowhere promised to respond to the prayers of unbelievers. The only prayers that he has promised to hear, to hear in the sense of listening and listening with a sympathetic ear and undertaking to answer when the prayers are made according to his will, the only prayers he's promised to hear like that are the prayers of his true people offered through one mediator, Jesus Christ. I tell unbelievers... There's only one prayer he wants to hear from you. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me. The overall biblical view is captured in some of those verses you have there, Proverbs 15, verse 8. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The prayer of the upright, though, is his delight. Proverbs 15, the Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. And Peter quotes the Old Testament and says this, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's sort of a, a, a metaphor, a symbol that says this. It's as if this is happening, that when the unbeliever prays to God, that God just sort of turns his back to them. So the bottom line is this. In order to pray with confidence... In order to know that God hears our prayers, the person must be saved, must be a genuine follower of Christ. Here's a second question. Well, then what about Old Testament believers? They lived and died before Jesus the Messiah came. What about their prayers? Good question. You're asking good questions this morning. I'm so glad I prepared some answers to these. Well, in the Old Testament... The work of Jesus as our mediator was foreshadowed by the sacrificial system. All those animal sacrifices, all the offerings made by the priest, it was pointing to something. There was no saving merit inherent in their system of sacrifices. They were able to have the cleansing of their conscience in a ceremonial way, but it was all pointing to something. It was through the sacrificial system that was foreshadowing the sacrifice of Christ that believers were accepted. In other words, they were accepted by God only based on that future work of Christ, what those sacrifices and offerings were pointing to. So yes, genuine Old Testament believers, and they were the minority, not all of Jews were saved. There was a remnant of those who really came to have faith in God and believe Him. Old Testament, genuine Old Testament believers could have the confidence that God heard their prayers, still all based upon the future work of Christ. And the psalmist took joy in knowing his prayers were heard. Psalm 116, I love the Lord because He hears my voice and my supplications. So the bottom line is all God's people which are those who have a genuine relationship with Him through faith, have the assurance that they can talk, truly talk to God. 
and they can have the assurance that He hears. We didn't gain that privilege through our own performance. And we don't keep it through our own performance. We didn't gain that privilege like some the pagans would do with their gods, you know, trying to bribe and manipulate their gods with good deeds and ceremonial rites. We're not doing that. It's all based on the performance of Christ who's opened the way. And because Christ, our mediator, because of him, we have then confidence to approach God as our heavenly Father. A father who loves his children and cares for them and loves to hear their prayers. That's why Jesus taught his followers to begin their prayers a certain way. What we call the Lord's Prayer, which is better called the, the model prayer, he was teaching his followers. It's, you pray like this. He says in Matthew 6, 9, pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven. We go into his presence as a as a child to a father, and we talk to him. And we're to do it throughout the day, our daily schedule punctuated with those conversations. By the way, there are a few prayers in the New Testament, but only a few that are addressed to the Son or the Holy Spirit. So there's nothing in Scripture that forbids that. I mean, both the Son and the Spirit, like the Father, are part of the triune God and worthy of our prayer and worship and powerful to answer prayers, no doubt about it. But it's still clear that the majority of the prayers in the New Testament are addressed to God the Father. And so, therefore, I would say addressing our own prayers that way should be our dominant pattern as well. And the point is the fact that God is our Father and the fact that we have access to that Father because of the atoning work of Christ, our mediator, all of that is the foundation, the basis of Christian prayer. Something else we need to address this morning, and that is the motivations for prayer. I mean, I've just been talking about this wonderful privilege we have, living our lives daily in the presence of God, speaking to Him throughout the day. So why don't we do it? Why don't we readily fulfill this command to pray without ceasing? Here's the answer. We do what we're motivated to do. That's what we do. And if our hearts are not motivated to pray, then we are sinning and we don't pray and that means we are going about our daily lives living, as some have called it, practical atheist. What does that mean? We say we are His people, but we go about our lives each day as if we don't need Him. So there's the question for us. What kind of heart is motivated to pray? So I'm going to give you a list, a brief list, that I hope will help answer that question different types of heart motivations, that if they're there, we will pray. Here's the first kind of heart that prays, a humble heart. A humble heart prays. And when it comes to praying, this needed humility is expressed in more than one way. It's expressed in our sense of total dependency on the Lord. It takes humility 
to understand that you're totally dependent on the Lord. That goes along with recognizing the other side of that, recognizing our total insufficiency. When we understand both sides of that, our total dependency slash our total insufficiency, then we will constantly be motivated to maintain an attitude of prayer. This humility is also expressed in the desire that's in our heart that God would be glorified in however He chooses to answer the prayer. Humility says that. And just remember something. That's the highest motivation for anything we do. Remember, according to 1 Corinthians 10.31, in everything you do, you do it to the glory of God. Well, prayer is part of the everything. Prayer is something that glorifies God. Even the very act of it glorifies God. When commenting on believers' prayers being answered, Jesus said this, John 14, whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, there's something that's the opposite of having a humble heart desire that God would be glorified. And Jesus, James comments on that in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 3. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Here's what that means. Many pray just wanting God to do what they want God to do. But humility doesn't go to God like that. Humility moves us to ultimately want what is going to glorify God the most in every situation. It's pride that makes demands of God. It's pride that thinks God owes us something. And that's not the purpose of prayer, to somehow make demands of God, to somehow manipulate God, to somehow pressure God to finally giving in and doing what we want. And frankly, the person who is making demands of God, that person is evidencing a total misunderstanding of the gospel message. Because the gospel message is a message that we are unworthy in every way, but that God saves sinners based upon His mercy and His grace alone. And when we fully comprehend the gospel, then we are willing for God to do anything in our lives that He wants because we understand how much we owe Him. And we're not going to make demands of God. And this desire for God's glory even relates to that previous issue of dependency. You understand that going to God with that attitude and even confessing our dependency and our total insufficiency, that glorifies Him when we do that. It honors Him. He loves to hear us say that. So this should be enough motivation to pray, just knowing that God is glorified through our dependency and our desire for His will to be done in all things. Let me say it another way. God is pleased when we pray. And see, that's something true believers also long for. They want to please God. Pleasing God, the desire for that, you know where that comes from? That's the result of true salvation. Saving faith is not merely the exercise of just human reason and making a human decision about something. It's a supernatural event. It's a supernatural reorientation of the whole person toward God to live by His grace and for His glory 
and for his pleasure. So in summary, this humility of heart is obviously crucial to an effective prayer life. Let me put it bluntly. Pride kills the motivation to pray. Here's another kind of heart that will end up in prayer, a grateful heart. A grateful heart. Why? A thankful heart just yearns to express that to the Lord. It yearns to express gratitude for all that He is, all that He's done, all that He's doing, all that He will do. It's like that in human relationships. Somebody does something for us that's nice or gives us something, and, and we want to thank them for that. We want to hurry and write a thank you note or, or next time we see them to say, hey, thank you for that. Even more so with God. As we think about all that He is, all that He's done in our lives, all the blessings we have, all that He's doing now, all that He's going to do, no wonder thanksgiving and prayer are connected so many times in God's Word. Psalm 95, let us come before His presence with thanksgiving. Psalm 100, enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Paul wrote this in Philippians 1, I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy. So no doubt, a person who is ungrateful, which is a person who is chafing over the sovereignty of God in their lives, this is a person who chafes over God's sovereignty because they think they know better than God, that prideful, ungrateful person will not pray. And it's like that in human relationships, is it not? When there's frustration or irritation in our hearts towards someone, I mean, just hypothetically speaking here, when we're angry towards someone, when there's even disappointment in someone, humans tend to avoid then that other person. At times, not even wanting to speak to that other person. It's like that with God. Therefore, sadly, people stay away from talking to God because they're disappointed in Him, because they're angry at Him. And that tendency exposes a lack of gratitude in the heart, and that lack of gratitude will result in an avoidance of prayer. But the bottom line is that grateful people pray. Here's a third kind of heart that's motivated to pray, a burdened heart, a burdened heart. And we can be burdened over different things, just thinking in broad categories here. This includes the burden that we sense because of conviction over our sin and our guilt. I mean, when we're convicted of sin, the, the only solution to that burdened, convicted conscience is to go to the Lord in prayer to find the relief that we need. Psalm 32 David, many years after his sin with Bathsheba, looking that, back on that experience, what it was like before he confessed, he says, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. He even suffered physically. Verse 5, though, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I didn't hide. I said, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord, and God forgave him of the guilt of his sin. My favorite is Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. There will be no soul prosperity. They'll be miserable. 
But he who confesses and forsakes them finds something wonderful, compassion. The classic verse in the New Testament, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, and the word confess there in the Greek means to say the same thing God says about it. We don't minimize our sin. We don't rationalize it. We don't blame shift it. We don't spin it. We call it what it is. And when we do that, He is so faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we're burdened because of our sin and guilt, we'll pray. There's another kind of burden that motivates us to pray. It's a burden over the lost people that's around us. Could be lost friends, could be lost neighbors, lost loved ones in our families. When we're burdened about that, we'll bring them to the Lord. Acts 26, verse 18, we see an example of that. He says, we pray that God would open their eyes so that they can turn from darkness to light. From the dominion of Satan to God, God release them that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Paul said in Romans 10 that that was his greatest burden about his fellow countrymen, the Jews. He prayed for them that they would just get saved. And this burden over lost people will drive us to pray for those individuals. This burden for lost people will drive us to pray for missions around the world as well, especially our own missionaries that we know so that the gospel would go forth in power across the world. And of course, we believe in the sovereignty of God because the Scripture teaches that we understand that salvation is a supernatural work of God. We can't change anyone's heart. It doesn't matter whether they're a friend, an enemy, or a close family member. We can't do it, but God can. So we run to Him in prayer, and we give Him our burden about lost. There's another example of a burdened heart It's like the second one, it's just broader. It's the burden over the state of the world. Listen, unless you're living under a rock somewhere, surely you know that sin and evil is increasing in our world dramatically, even in our own country, in our own culture. We are constantly bombarded with wicked agendas of worldly thinking people. I mean, the commercials are have agendas now, wicked agendas. Shows that we're safe, have, they have to get in some wicked agendas. We're bombarded that. We're bombarded with worldly thinking leaders. We're in a sad state of affairs here in this nation as we approach an election. Our hearts are heavy over the lack of true leaders with integrity that we can joyfully support. And that heavy burden should drive us to prayer. I mean, prayer that God would raise up leaders with integrity. And prayer, even beyond that, that God would then overturn the evil and the wicked and still use it for His glory and even our good. A burdened heart will pray. Here's another kind of heart that will be motivated to pray. It's it's an eager heart. Eagerness for different things. Definitely this one, eagerness for fellowship, intimacy with the Lord. It's prayer that that increases our sense of fellowship with God. I mean, that's what communication does. Even in human relationships, I have told countless number of couples and premarital classes and on and on it goes, the fact that communication is the one thing on the practical level that fosters a sense of fellowship and intimacy between people. 
Communication does that. True in marriage. Definitely true with God. We communicate with God because we, we want that intimacy. We want that fellowship. David certainly understood that as much as anybody. He says in Psalm 42, as the deer pants for the water brooks. That's the little deer. That it wasn't safe for that little deer to go out to the water during the day when the predators were there. But is dying in the heat of starvation, so thirsty, but at night under cover can finally venture out and get some water. Panting for the water. David says, I know what I've observed that. He says, my soul's like that. I pant for God. I thirst for God. People that thirst for God will pray. People that don't thirst for God won't pray. He was in the desert when he wrote Psalm 63, running from his son. He looked around the desert and he said, my soul's like this. Oh God, my soul is dry. Thirst for you. So we pray to enjoy fellowship with God. And by the way, there's a related thought here. It works in reverse. God loves the fellowship with us. What a thought. When we pray, He also delights in that fellowship. So if we're eager for fellowship, we'll pray. There's another kind of eagerness that will drive us to pray, and it's an eagerness to grow spiritually. I mean, if we don't care about growing, then don't pray. But if we want to grow, we won't grow without God's enabling grace to help us grow. And if we want to grow, we'll, we'll yearn to pray some of those same things that Paul prayed for the believers he was ministering to, some of those great prayers in Scripture that are wonderful just to put your own name in sometimes and pray for yourself. Ephesians 3, I bow my knees before the Father that God would grant you, those believers, according to the riches of His glory, that you would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Pray that for yourself and for others. So that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be filled up to the fullness of God. Colossians 1, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why? So you'll grow and so you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him. People who don't care about maturing spiritually are happy where they are, won't pray. There's another eagerness I thought of. It's the eagerness to be used by God. Or to say it differently, the eagerness to participate in God's activity around the world. This is one of the purposes of prayer. It is a primary opportunity to be involved in a significant way in the work of the kingdom. In fact, that's what God has ordained for prayer to be. Now again... Sovereignty of God, we believe it. God in His sovereignty has ordained the end of all things. But Scripture also makes it clear that He has ordained the means that will reach those ends. And the means include things like evangelism and the means include prayer. He has ordained that He would work through our prayers. Even if we can't make total sense of how His sovereignty and our participation fit together, the fact is God does respond to and use our prayers. 2 Chronicles 7.14, and my people who are called by my name, the idea is when they humble themselves and when they pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven 
and I'll forgive their sin. I'll heal their land. I respond. Again, 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sin. He does something. He forgives. The question is whether we believe that or not. Wayne Grudem has a great, great quote. If we pray little, it's probably because we do not really believe that prayer accomplishes much at all. But the reality is God, here's the best attempt I can make of reconciling things, God sovereignly moves on our hearts concerning what we pray, even if it's something that He's going to answer no to. Even in that, He has a purpose of teaching him us about His will and channeling us so that we understand His will better for the next prayer. He moves on our hearts what to pray, and that includes He sovereignly moves to accomplish what His eternal will is through what He moves in our hearts to pray. If you're eager for that, it's exciting to participate in what God is doing. One more kind of heart, a needy heart, certainly goes to God in prayer. A humble heart, a grateful heart, a burdened heart, an eager heart, a needy heart. And, of course, we have lots of needs. So, once again, I'm just speaking in broad categories here. We have spiritual needs for sure, and one of those spiritual needs is the ever-present need for wisdom in the midst of trials. We live in the midst of a sinful world. There's always going to be suffering and trials that we experience. And so James chapter 1 verse 5 talks about the wisdom we need, and it's in the context of trials. He says this, if you lack wisdom, ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach that wisdom. So when we sense our need for wisdom in trials, we will pray for it. There's another spiritual need. We just need general direction in our lives. I mean, we don't know everything. We have to make decisions. We need directions. And we know what Proverbs 16.9 says, the mind of man plans his way, but it's the Lord that directs the steps. So we come humbly admitting our need for direction. We don't know everything, Lord. And when we have that need, we'll pray. Still another spiritual need. It's just the relief from the angst in our heart, the burden that's there because of fear and worry and anxiety. And that sin is so prevalent in so many people. And again, Philippians 4, 6, don't be anxious for anything. But in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving and request, there's different words for prayer right there. Make all that known to God. Take your burden to the Lord and the peace of God that is beyond comprehension will guard your heart and mind. We bring our anxiety. We bring the burden that's causing it to the Lord and we have peace. No wonder the psalmist wrote in Psalm 4, you have relieved me in my distress. These are just some of the spiritual needs that motivate us to pray. In addition to that, there's practical needs. We have practical needs that we need to pray for. Luke 11, 9 through 13, we don't have time to talk about it, but it's, that, it's where Jesus is comparing this, this parable. He's comparing our praying to a good God. It's compared to a son who goes to his father to ask for a fish or an egg there. And the point is, just as children look to their fathers to provide them for them, so God expects us to do that. He expects us to look to Him in prayer to provide for us. 
And once again, I can refer you back to the model prayer that he taught his disciples in Matthew 6. It includes an acknowledgement that we can pray for our material needs. Give us this day our daily bread. We pray for sustenance. We pray for material things. We pray for the money we need. We pray for other things that we need physically and the things we're suffering physically out of a needy heart. So there's definitely a question for us today. If we're not praying, what's wrong with our hearts? Are we prideful, thinking we don't need Him? Living as practical atheists? Are we just wanting our way and not thinking in higher terms about God's glory instead? Are we ungrateful? Have we forgotten the many things that God has done for us? And who He is? Have our hearts become callous toward our own sin and the lostness of this world and the people around us? Have we grown cold in an eagerness to want to fellowship and spend time with God and to grow spiritually and to be used in His kingdom work? Have we just lost sight of the many spiritual needs that we have? even trying to meet all of our practical needs in our own strength. We need to go before the Lord and maybe even pray what David prayed in Psalm 51, his great confession to the Lord. I think it's verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O Lord. I'm missing some of these kinds of motivations. Well, we've completed half of our look at the doctrine of prayer. And as I said, we'll, we'll study some more on this important doctrine that's so important to our walk with Christ, even more on the practical side, even next week, if the Lord wills. Let me just leave you with some wonderful quotes. D.A. Carson, it is exceedingly important to remember that prayer is not magic, and that God is personal as well as sovereign. Remember that the Bible simultaneously pictures God as utterly sovereign and also a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God. S.D. Gordon, the greatest thing anyone can do for God and for man is to pray. It's not the only thing, but it's the chief thing. Joel Beakey, devote yourself to prayer. The devil will fear you and God will hear you. I wish I could say things like that. The great John Bunyan, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. The implication of the sermon is pretty easy this week. Pray. Hebrews 4.16, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's go to him now. Father, we come, first of all, just so grateful that we can call you our Father because of the work of Christ. We're so grateful that you're the transcendent, eminent God, worthy of praise and honor and glory, who does all things that are good and right and just, perfect in every way. 
We thank you that you have condescended to save sinners like us by your grace and mercy through your Son. We are thankful for all the blessings that you give us. We are so undeserving. And you continue to be faithful to us even when we are unfaithful. But Lord, forgive us for the many ways we've allowed our hearts to become cold. And Lord, create in us once again a clean heart a heart that's humble and grateful and burdened and eager and needy so that we come to you for the fellowship that we need and for the help that we need. I do pray for anyone here who can't really even apply any of this because God doesn't, you don't hear their prayers. There's someone here that hasn't come to trust in Christ alone. May they pray the one prayer they need to pray. Father, forgive me. I am a sinner. Be merciful to me. Save me. I'll follow you the rest of my life. Bring them to that point. Give them the faith they need. In Christ's name, amen.